So I'm excited to, to jump into the text that we're going to be in today. I, I want to read it. I want you to hear it in its entirety, and, and then we'll dig into it. And so we're going to be in Psalm 126 um, this morning. The psalmist writes, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouths was, was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy bringing his sheaves with him. Uh, the theologian uh, J.I. Packer, who, who passed away not too long ago, writes these words, Worship is the honoring and glorifying of God by gratefully offering back to him all the good gifts and all the knowledge of his greatness and graciousness that he has given. It, it involves praising him for what he is thanking him for what he has done, desiring him to get himself more glory by further acts of mercy, judgment, and power, and trusting him with our concern for our own and others' future well-being. What I love about that just, I mean, that, that full quote by Packer is this, is he reminds us that worship is not limited to just singing. It certainly includes that aspect. And we're grateful that we have that, that part of worship. But it's not just singing. Worship includes prayer and attitude, allegiance, obedience, and, and trusting Him with our whole lives. It is an all-accompanying act where we are ascribing worth to God, or the value of God, we're describing that, with, um, that to Him with our whole person, with, with the entirety of our lives. That's worship, not just singing. But I don't know you, about you, but there is a challenge in this for me as I walk through everyday life. It's not too hard for me to gather with God's people and be reminded of God's goodness and to be able to sing and to be able to trust in those moments. But as I'm going through everyday life, there's a reality of this life that hits me and makes worship difficult for me if I'm being completely honest. See... I don't struggle with this attitude of worship when things are going well. I, I actually am a pretty naturally grateful person. I, I, God's just given me that disposition. And so when things are going well, and by well, the way, I, what I mean is the way that I want them to go, it's really not hard for me to worship. It's very easy for me to turn my attention to Him and just say thank you, to trust Him. But when the twists and turns of life come, when the difficulties in those moments come, it's a much greater struggle for me, to be perfectly honest. If life takes me to those difficult, dark moments, which it does, worship isn't my natural default. It just isn't. I, I would love to say that I'm just like Paul and Silas who could be in chains in a, in a, in a cell in Philippi and just it, the, the response of my heart is going to be to sing hymns. But that's never been me. 
just not my natural response. And so I don't know if you can relate to that. I mean, maybe there just is a little bit more natural faith where in the midst of those moments, you just go, hey, thank you, Lord. But I imagine that in this room that many of you could join me in in that little bit of honesty, that it really is a challenge for you as well. And one of the things that I've loved about the Psalms, it it has given me words to be able to express what I really feel sometimes in life, and it's redirected my attention to the God who deserves worship even in spite of my circumstances. And so what I want to look at this morning is how do we, as God's people who who have experienced so much grace and so much generosity from, how do we more faithfully and and, and, uh, reflect and represent that true worship isn't based on our circumstances, but it is based on the God who is good and he's great and he's got the character and, and desire to join us in the midst of our circumstances. And there is a big distinction between those two. And so that's where we're going to go in this psalm this morning. And I think this psalm, it, I, I know it has been a real help in my life and I believe that it will be a real help in yours this morning. So Psalm 126 is a part of a section of Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. There are 15 Psalms from Psalm 120 to 134 that are a collection of Psalms that Jewish pilgrims would sing on their travels to Jerusalem for one of the feasts or one of the, uh, of, of their uh, festivals. And, and what I love about these Psalms is that the psalmist in them paints pictures Um, that really do give expression to our experience. They they talk about the joys and the pains, the highs and the lows, the successes and failures. It's all in this collection of Psalms. And so they're meant to give words to our experience, to uh, what life, to how we sort of respond in the midst of this life. But even more than that, they're intended to direct or in many cases redirect our attention off of our experiences and our circumstances back to the one who joins us in the midst of them. So that in the midst of them we actually can worship him the way that we should. And so we're going to look in depth here at Psalm 126. Now, as we get going in this, I actually want to do something a little bit different. I want to start in the second half of the psalm. So I know we like to start at the beginning of things, but I'm going to start in the second half because there's really two parts to this psalm. And the second part of this psalm is it, it describes where they are now as they're singing it. The, the experience that they're going through, the situation or the circumstance and how they're, how they're experiencing that. It starts with that as they're singing and then it looks back. And so I think that's important for us and it's going to actually teach us something um, in that pattern. And so verse 4 says this, it says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And so there's a prayer that's going on here in this second half. This song has has sort of a prayer aspect to it where they're crying out to God, restore our fortunes. Here's the image that's being painted. Uh, So think about farming for a second. So farming in even a normal situation, in a land that is lush, 
in a land where, where farming's not that difficult, farming still is hard, isn't it? It, it still takes work. I mean, you're tilling the soil, you're planting the seed, you're watering, and you're doing that over and over again. And then the worst part about farming is then sometimes you just wait. You wait to see if there's going to be fruit. You wait to see if, if things are going to grow. And that can be difficult in itself. But if you're in a, an environment like the people are in, in the Negev, the southern part of Judah, which was, which was this arid, dry land most of the year, where, where we, you don't have some just, just, the, um, just the beautiful vegetation that, that we experience so much of. That, I mean, imagine being a farmer in that environment. You're going out with your seed and you're thinking, I, I'm not even sure I should bother. But I don't have any other hope. Maybe it's the last seed. Maybe it's, there's just a little bit left and you're going, God, I, I don't know what you can do with this in this situation, but I have nowhere else to turn to. I have no other option. And so you plant the seed with this mixture of faith and doubt that probably you're experiencing internally where you're going, God, I have no other choice but to trust in you. And so please restore our fortunes, God. I don't know how you're going to do it. I'm not sure I even believe that you're going to do it, but I really don't have anywhere else to turn. If you've ever been there, you you get an idea of what they're experiencing. I've been there. And, and in the midst of this situation, in this midst of this discouragement and this, maybe this little doubt that they're carrying, this desperation, they turn to God and they, 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 they scream out, they, they sing out, restore our fortunes, O God, like streams in the Negev. The interesting thing about this, the Negev, is that most of the year it's dry and arid, but, but the water eventually comes. And when it comes, it begins to fill out these dried out gullies that are running through the landscape. And from that, vegetation begins uh, to, to form and to take shape and to come out of this landscape that you thought, man, this is impossible. You see the picture that's being painted in the psalm. It's beautiful. In the midst of the dry, arid land of their life. They are crying out in desperation, saying, God, would you please restore us? Would you, would you just allow some vegetation, some life to come out? So it's interesting in the midst of that, because again, I think many of us have been in that, that place where it feels like we have this dried up, hopeless condition that we're experiencing in the midst of that, how are they able to turn their attention to God? What gives them this hope that something might actually happen? How are they able to sing and to pray and to have this attitude and posture of worship? And I think that's where verse 1 uh, comes in so beautifully. And, um, and as we turn there, here's what I want to do. I want to actually just give two things here this morning. Sort of, kind of two points, and, and I think they're just two ways that that God um, allows us to be able to turn our attention off of circumstances back onto Him in trust, in faith, in worship. So, just I'll, I'll mention two things, and here's the first, and we see this in verse one: is that the way their attention is able to be redirected, the way their attitude and their worship is able to be redirected, is that they remember who God is and 
how he has already gotten involved and intervened in their lives. So both his character and his activity in their lives. As they remember that, they're able to turn their attention. Look at this, verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. And so we don't know exactly what they were looking back on. I mean, if you've, if you've studied your Old Testament, you know there were, there were many things they could have looked back on, right? I mean, there were many opportunities in the life of God's people that he acted, he intervened, he restored them in the midst of hopeless and desperate situations. I mean, maybe they recalled God delivering from them from their slavery and oppression in Egypt as he takes them and leads them through the Red Sea, which he parted right in front of them. Or, or maybe they're looking back on when God just does this unbelievable thing where he, he calls Gideon to lead the army and, and then whittles down their large army to just 300 people to fight just the endless troops of the Midians. And there's no question in that moment the people you know God won the victory. Or maybe when God raised up David from tending sheep to stand as a representative of God and as a representative of the people to fight, God, uh, to fight Goliath. I mean, we, there are countless things that they could have been looking back to, but the point is this, is as they remember God in their past restoring their fortune, they're able to turn their hope and their attention to him. That word restore, I think it's just, a, it's a beautiful word. I think we get the idea, but I want to hone in on it for just a second. Really, the concept there is this idea of bringing back, of repairing, of renewing. I've got a friend, he actually, uh, pastor of Spanish River Church up in, up in Boca Raton, um, just a, a, a good friend. He is a car guy. And sort of all his life, he has restored, um, he's restored cars. And he passed on that love of restoration to one of his sons. And one day, his, uh, his son came home, I mean, with a, a real junker. In fact, I have a picture of it for you. You can see it on that trailer. Uh, and he comes home with this, and he runs into the house, and he says, Dad, look at this amazing deal that I got. And his dad thought, you know, listen, we've restored a lot of vehicles. This one doesn't look good. We've got some work cut out. In fact, here's the second picture. This is sort of the in-between stage. I mean, they took this thing down. And isn't it true that sometimes in our lives, it feels like that as a part of the restoration process, that's how bad it even gets. Now, don't make light of that. It's just our reality sometimes. But then here's the final picture. I mean, isn't that amazing? What an image, I think, of, of what's being talked about here. I mean, this is the sort of hope that they have for their lives. That, God, that as they're experiencing just you know, being maybe even taken through that middle stage, that they kind of look with hope to the future saying, can we be that? God, we believe you can do that because we've seen you do that in the past. 
Would you do it one more time? Would you do it now? I mean, what a beautiful, I think, image. And, and, and when the restoration begins to happen, it, it, when it happened in their lives, I, I love this phrase. It's, uh, it says, we were like those who dream. I mean, the imagery in the psalm, it captures our attention, doesn't it? I mean, it really is deep. I mean, it felt too good to be true. It felt like one of those moments where you're going, all right, pinch me, am I dreaming? They're going, it we were like those who dream it says our mouth was filled with laughter um i whenever i hear that phrase i think of that the toddler who's who gets the giggles and it's uncontrollable in fact it gets to the point where you're going okay would you please stop laughing and it's just that uncontrollable laughter that happens um that's, I think, the picture. We were like those who dream. Our mouth was filled with laughter. We could not stop. That's how great the restoration project was. And then it says this. Our tongue was filled with shouts of joy. I mean, this, this was not, you know, golf claps and handshakes. This, I mean, if, if you're a sports person like I am, I mean, this is... You know, grown men jump after they win the championship, jumping in each other's arms, looking like children. Tears coming down their face, excitement, hugging, and all those sorts of things. I mean, so even though I don't live in Miami, I'm a lifelong Miami Dolphins fan, okay? This is my dream for the Dolphins. That somebody would come and restore their fortunes. And I see you, Patriots fans. I see you. Your day is coming. All right. Hey, my my twenty year old son is a Patriots fan. So, yeah, no, I still don't like the, I still don't like him. Okay, I mean that's so that's the picture. This restoration project. There's this dream. There's this hope. There's this, and they realize there is no other hope than their God, and so they turn to Him. Look at this next verse. Well, second half of verse 2. And then they said among the nations. That's significant there, okay? Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And then they said, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. See, God's restoration project in their life is so spectacular. It is so unexpected that the nations around them see what happens, and they have no choice but to acknowledge that must have been God. Do you catch that? I mean, this is, what the, this is what I was praying earlier, wasn't it? When we sang the second verse of that song again, it's that, God, that, that the nations around us would see what God is doing in our lives and they would go, yeah, it, it couldn't have been them. It had to have been God. I mean, think about this. I mean, God's gracious intervention causes unbelieving nations to worship him. That's how great it was. To just go, yep, that, that was God. And what it also does is it reminds them, you know what, we need to worship him. I mean, the Lord has done great things for us. And I love this phrase. You know what, the Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. They see the nations saying that, and they go, yeah, we should be saying that as well. 
So you see what happens as they look back and as they remember God's intervention in their lives. They are able, they are reminded, they are encouraged, they are inspired. Worship in this case is not an obligation. They're not saying, you know what, I probably should do this. From the depths of their heart, they're going, how can I not do this? Oh man, I want that for my life. I mean, because isn't this our story? Do you see the parallel in our story here? I mean, this is the gospel. I mean, what a beautiful parallel to our story as well. I mean, you and I, I mean, we are a people dead in our transgressions and sin. You know, because we had, I mean, really, and, and the reason that we're in that place, it's a worship issue. We had exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We worshiped created things rather than the one who created those things, including ourselves. And so what we do is we actually, we rebel against God's authority. We disobey his commands. We turn our trust, our worship, our hope into created things, whether it's ourselves or whether it's a relationship in our lives, whether it's, um, whether it's something, um, you know, kind of in our situation, a career, whatever it might be. We take good things, we make them God things. We begin to turn our worship to them. That is sin. And that sin leaves us dead. And so we live then in this life as a broken people in the midst of a broken world. Spiritually and eternally dead, separated from him. And yet, and yet God says it's not going to stay that way. And what I love about this is God doesn't do it from a distance. God, the Son, enters our world. Jesus is born. He takes on humanity. He lives the life that we live, and yet he does it very differently. While he is tempted to sin, he does not. He lives a perfect life. And then at the end of his life, he goes to a Roman cross. He is, God, he is placed on that cross. And on that cross, he is there as our representative, as our substitute. And when he is on this cross, and I don't even, I mean, like I get this up here. I don't fully get this. God, the Father, takes our sin and he places it on Jesus. And he says, I'm punishing you in their place. I mean, how remarkable that is. Our sin is literally nailed to the cross. Jesus dies. He is the perfect sacrifice. His, his death on the cross is, is a sufficient sacrifice to pay for our sin. And because he pays for sin completely, yeah, I mean, even when he is laid in the, the tomb, uh, he doesn't stay there because the sentence has been paid. Death can no longer hold him. He is raised from the dead victoriously. Sin, Satan, death, all conquered. All of it conquered. Through his sacrifice. I mean, what an unbelievable thing. And then the good news for us is that as we turn from these created things back to the creator. By his grace through faith. As we place our trust in him. He reconciles us back in relationship with the father. He takes us from death to life. He restores us. And not only are we restored relationally, but he transforms us so that we're made into new creations who can, now, who can now actually live the full, abundant life that he created us to live by grace. The restoration project. But the restoration project is not complete. 
right? I mean, we know this. We feel this. I mean, even my friend's car up there, it, it is going to need ongoing care. That's the world we live in. That's what our lives experience as well. We will run out of gas. Literally and figuratively, probably at times, right? The interior will get a little dirty. The exterior is going to get a little worn. At 48, when I look in the mirror, it doesn't look like 21-year-old Jason. It gets a little worn. Yet hear me on this. God... God stays involved every second, every minute, every day, every month, every year with his restoration project. He never leaves or forsakes us. He never ceases to finish the work that he started. Now there are going to be times, right? There are going to be moments where we don't feel God's involvement. I mean, we have enough of the Psalms to know that we're not alone in that. We'll wonder where he is. And and the truth is, we actually aren't going to fully experience the restoration in this life. I mean, we sang about that. We look ahead to the day, a happy day, where Jesus will return. We will be brought into the presence of God. Sin, Satan, sickness, death, strife, anger, frustration, all that we experience in this life, it'll be gone. All things will be made new. And then it's in that moment there will be like the people where we will be, you know, those who went out weeping will be returning with shouts of joy. And so even in those moments right now where you're going, I'm not sure where you are, God. There's two things you can look at that you can remember. One is remember how God has worked in your life previously where he's restored other moments and other situations but you also get to look ahead with the promise that god has given that says i'm coming for you again this time it won't be as a little baby in a manger it'll be as a conquering king who will make all things new and you'll experience it fully And this forces us to remember who he is and all he's done and all that he will do for us. See, remembering God and recalling his activity in our lives, it turns our focus from our situation back towards God in attitude, allegiance, and in these acts of worship. Which is why remembering is one of the things that we want to do. Which is why it is so important. Listen, the reason that you gather on a Sunday, please don't let it be a religious obligation. You're wasting your time if it's that. We're gathering together as God's people so that we can sing together, so that we can remember together. I wasn't joking when I said you did not need me to preach this morning. We sang the gospel we encouraged each other. I mean, that time of prayer. I mean, that, that is us together. I mean, there's so many reasons to gather together. It reminds us of the goodness and graciousness of God. This isn't, like God's not going, well, you didn't go to church today. Strike you off the list. Get that out of your minds. God wants you to be here because he knows how valuable it is both for you and the people that you're next to to sing together and minister together and care for each other together. See, that actually takes me to the second point. There are moments in our lives where we honestly, we can't muster up the strength and faith and courage to be able to remember what God's done. The, the, the circumstances of this life are way too overwhelming. God understands that and he says, hey, guess what? I'm giving you people to walk through this life with. 
See, not only do we remember who he is and all that he's done, but we also walk side by side with others who, when we're weak, they can be strong and they can go, hey, listen, this is unbelievably hard what you're facing. They're able to put our our arms around us and say, listen, if you can't sing, let me sing for you. You know, and so he gives us the community, he gives us people to sing with. He graciously gives us each other to walk with and sing with and do life with, especially when these circumstances are too great. But, but please, hear me on this. Let me say this. I, if the community is going to be a support, if the church community is going to be a support, then we need to continue to learn how to be more supportive. I've experienced too much of this. See, if we continue as a church, and and this, I don't know you, so I'm not accusing you, okay? So just hear me, I mean, hear this with grace. This is just my experience of the church at large. And this is my experience of my own life, if I'm really honest. If we continue to be characterized by things like religious obligation, uh, moral superiority, I've got faith, you don't have enough of it, you need to have more faith, those kind of statements, You do, but sometimes in the moment that's not the most helpful. It can be this superiority. If we have these judgmental attitudes, then we will never be a safe place for those who are hurting, those who are struggling with their faith, those who who are battling sin, those who are battling the doubts that just are there. They're trying to get rid of them, but they just keep creeping up, who who are dealing with past experiences and failures and sicknesses or any of the burdens of this life. We have to be a people. We have to be a people who are willing to not only rejoice with those who rejoice, but who are willing to weep with those who weep, not telling the weep the weeping that they need to muster up more strength. Does that make sense? And in those moments where the weep the weeping are weeping, those are the moments that we come alongside and we put our arms around them and we just pray for them. Sometimes we just sit with them. Sometimes we 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 just tear up with them. Sometimes in those moments, we laugh with them. Because God sometimes gives us the graciousness of being able to do that in the midst of the hardest of times. But the thing is this, is the community, as the church community, we have to be willing to not only enter, and actually I think it's hard for some of us to enter the celebration moments because we have to deal with our own jealousies and we have to deal with our own struggles going, why, are you, why is life so good for you when it's so bad for me right now? We have to be willing to do both. Both of those are, are what it means to be a part of the body of Christ and both of those allow us to minister to each other in the, the ups and downs, failures and successes of this life. Are you with me? I'm so desperate for the church to be that for each other. So let's rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Let's be a people who together remember God's grace, his mercy, his love, his forgiveness, his compassions, his patience, and his activity in each other's lives. And let that just draw us to both worship together. And so to wrap this up, I mean, think about this way. Faced with their current situation, I mean, we see what the people do, right? God's people turn their attention, their allegiance, their hope to God, and they do it by singing together, remembering together this time when God had restored their fortunes, their lives, their 
taken them out of their difficulty, out of their despair, and he's done it with great care. And they, they sing, you know what? If he did it then, why not now? Why not now? See, this psalm reminds us that we're not alone. It reminds us that we're not without hope, even when it feels like all hope is gone. It directs our gaze to the one who can restore our fortunes again and again and again. And it gives us reason to worship even in spite of the circumstances we're facing. Let me pray. As I pray, I just want to read the words of Romans 8. At the very end, just listen to these. Let them minister to you. I mean, I know they're familiar, but let them just minister to you. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who's interceding for you. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so God, right now, knowing that in this room we are in a million different places as it relates to what we've been talking about. And so, God, I pray that for those who really are struggling in doubt or struggling in this battle with sin, that you would give them the strength and the faith to be able to turn their attention to you. Pray for those who are doing well, that you would put compassion and mercy and patience and graciousness on our hearts, that we could put our arms around our brothers and sisters who are hurting, and that we could weep with them tenderly. We could show them the same compassion and mercy and and patience that you've shown them. That we really would stand in this together, and as we stand in this together, that we would remember together your character, your goodness, your graciousness to us, and it would give us hope. Please do that, Lord. And as it gives us hope, let our hearts be turned. Let our attitudes be turned. Let our minds be turned. Let our, let our singing be turned to you in worship because you and you alone deserve all of the glory and all of the honor and all of the praise. And we pray this in the good and gracious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.